we continue our study we began last week in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you'll notice under the, the word, uh, the title, Ecclesiastes, or preacher. Now, we have discussed that Solomon is obviously the writer, the human writer of this book. We know that the Holy Spirit inspired him what to write. Ecclesiastes is one of the most unusual books in the Bible in that God has allowed a man to put his philosophies and opinions as he was away from the Lord, as he was seeking uh, other things, as his heart was lifted up with pride or going after uh, strange gods. He makes some assertions there that we need to look at in the light of what the rest of the Scripture teaches. And then he comes to the end of himself at the end of the book and tells us that uh, what we should know, that God is to be feared from our youth on up and that we should praise and serve him and him alone. He identifies himself in the scriptures as the son of David. There are several uh, clues, the king of Jerusalem, king of Israel. And uh, we know that this is pointing uh, to Solomon, although his name is not uh, written uh, in the book. He says he's the preacher. Now, the, the Hebrew word is the title given to an official speaker who calls an assembly together. And so you have the picture of one saying, this is some things you need to know. I want to convene this assembly together to address you and give you these important findings or thoughts or theories. And so that's, that's what the Hebrew word for preacher entails. The Greek word, which we, the title of the book here comes from the Greek derivation of the word ecclesia or the called out. We get our English word church from it. And so that's the word ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word assembly. The, the Hebrew word carries with it more than just the idea of addressing the assembly, but of debating with oneself. If you can have a picture that, and we see that as we study the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon seems to be debating with himself, vacillating at times, going back and forth. He would present a topic, discuss it from several viewpoints, and then come to a practical conclusion. He gives us his aim from right at the beginning. Look there in verse 2. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What a uh, predicament he's in. What a a sad and depressed view of life. And I will add here, outside of Christ, all is worthless and useless and empty. What profit hath a man of all of his labor which he hath taken under the sun? Just in case we miss it, he states it in verse 2. In verse 3, he reemphasizes it. This is a, a teaching method where teachers and preachers and those who address assemblies often repeat a truth in a different way or presents a question and then answers it in the next statement. And so in case we miss it, he hangs the key at the back door in chapter 12 and verse 8. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. So he goes through all of his journeying and ramblings and comes to that same conclusion. One word he often uses is vanity. Vanity is whatever disappears quickly. It's not here for very long. Now, you may live 90 years or 105 years or whatever, but it's still just a speck, just a, a, a brief a mist, a, a vapor, a dream, a tale that is told, all these grass that withereth. Uh, the, the Scripture uses these kinds of phrase, phrases to describe our journey here on earth, no matter how long it is compared to God's eternal being who has no beginning or ending. It is, it is nothing. And so vanity is, is whatever disappears quickly and leaves nothing behind and, and does not satisfy. 
Someone has said that vanity is whatever you have left after you break a soap bubble we saw last week. That's, that's nothing. It doesn't matter if Solomon is, is considering his wealth, and he is a man of great wealth. It's, it's hard for us to imagine what resources he had at his disposal. And most people think if they had just a certain enough, enough money, a certain amount of money, that life would have no problems. But we see that. We see it all around us among the rich and famous. That doesn't mean they don't have any problems, does it? Uh, some of them are solved, but we see that just as many are solved, it seems it accompanies a whole thousand others that come along with it that cannot be solved. Solomon could buy his way, humanly speaking, out of any situation, but he couldn't buy himself out of despair, could he? He couldn't give himself a a happy ending. He couldn't make the clouds of of darkness go away or doubt or any of those things. The, The amount of money in your checking account can't do one thing to those deeper matters of the soul. They can only affect the outward circumstances, the comforts of life, the necessities of life, but money can only go so far. So here's the wealthiest man of his day who had at his fingertips access to all the exotic treasures of earth. We can read the scripture and see something of his kingdom, the house he built for himself, the temple he built with the Lord for the Lord, an unrivaled work of art overlaid in gold and precious metals and all the the trappings of that place the queen of sheba came to check it out for herself and she said the half has not been told his throne all the different things of his kingdom were just remarkable and uh, something to, to to be said about but solomon's wealth does not stop him from writing a book like ecclesiastes if you were to look at this as solomon's memoir and and we could we could say that an autobiography Oh, what a sad record it is for someone who's been so privileged and so singularly blessed of the Lord when he considers his work. Now, this is one who's been allowed of God to build the temple of Jehovah. His father longed for that privilege, and it was denied to him, and that privilege was given to Solomon. You would think if you had to list on your resume or life achievements that I was entrusted with seeing, overseeing the construction of the temple of the creator of the universe. I mean, few people on earth can rival that uh, blessing or privilege, and yet still he writes Ecclesiastes. That work of being allowed to build the temple that represented all of God's uh, presence on earth, his wisdom, the book of Proverbs, no, there's no collection of wisdom that would equal what we find in the Proverbs. Uh, He comes to the same conclusion. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, there we go. You see, there's so much more to life than this body, although we're housed in it, and it uh, tells us and lets us know on a moment-by-moment basis how it's feeling, what it likes and doesn't like. But still, there's more to us than that. The inner man, the soul, the heart, the mind, the spirit, that unseen part of us that's immortal and eternal that's what solomon is saying is vexed think of that word vexed vexed is something that's aggravating you if you have a gnat uh, buzzing around your eyes or a mosquito or a bug or something or just a little you can have a, a hair in a garment that sticks in your skin and it just absolutely will drive you crazy won't it or a tiny pebble in a shoe You just have to stop whatever you do. I don't care how small it is. At some point, you're going to have to stop and deal with it. And so vexation is something 
that, that aggravates us. But when we talk about the vexation of the spirit, it's much more than just the minor discomforts or major discomforts of the body. This is soul matters. This is matters of the soul. And when the soul is vexed, we must give it attention. Another phrase he uses is under the sun. 29 times he uses under the sun or under the heavens. And so he's qualifying where he's talking about the the sphere of action. When you read a book, you need to find out where it's taking place. To not know where something is taking place, whether it's a work of fiction or whatever, is really bothersome. You know, is it up north, down south, in Europe or America? You want to, if you're reading something, even if it's the memoirs of someone, you want to know where they are when what they're talking about takes place because that, that gives added information. So he tells us this is on earth, under the sun, in this life, the here and now, in this physical life. It defines the outlook of the writer as he looks at life from a human perspective. And I think that's one of the keys you need to keep in mind. When you study Ecclesiastes, this is life from earth's perspective. And it does seem vexed and empty and useless if we do not consider the eternal weight of glory, eternity in view. If this is all there is to it, no matter how long you live and how much you achieve or how wealthy you become, it ends with this life. That, uh, that you're, you're gone. And then what? All you have will be someone else's or forgotten or destroyed. We read from time to time about wealthy people who've amassed a fortune, who, who've amassed some of the most amazing works of art on earth. Recently, about a year ago, one of the wealthiest women in America died, and she had bought uh, and purchased works of art that uh, people didn't know that were still in existence. Or when they went through her things, they found some, some pieces that had been forgotten about. And, and they auctioned for millions of dollars. And one writer was saying what she spent a lifetime amassing and probably one individual would never be able uh, in the future to amass all the different kinds of things that she had. And when Sotheby's auctioned off four or 5,000 pieces and articles that she had, and uh, I think the total auction brought over 200 and something million dollars just from her personal household belongings and artwork. Well, you know, someone said that would probably never be and matched again. I don't know about that, but I do know this. It was gone. It, it was broken up, if you will. Those things that she had gathered and uh, brought to, together were now dispersed, and they're here and there and everywhere. See, she spent a whole lifetime, lived to be 103, amassing uh, that collection and her, her wealth, and, and now it's divided up. Well, we could, look at, we could go back much farther than that. We could go back and look at a pyramid, we, we know the pyramids, we, we go through school and study, but you don't really know who's buried where or what tombstone. That, that's a tomb, tombstone of a, an ancient king. <laughs> uh, we don't know their names. I mean, if you, you studied, you could find out. You look in the encyclopedia, but it just doesn't readily come to mind. You'd think someone who could build something that monumental, no pun intended, with uh, the wealth and all the, and the, the uh ingenuity and the engineering that it took to do that, that the, the name would readily come to mind, but, but that doesn't. You see how, how we fade away as a vapor, as a tale that is told. Even the wealthiest and most powerful and those who can build pyramids are soon forgotten. 
Then he, he tells us that this is from a human perspective, and he applies his own limited wisdom and experience to the complex human situations and tries to make some sense out of life. That's what philosophers do. That's what people do who do not know the scriptures or the Lord. They just give their opinion. Well, this is how I see. Why does pain and suffering happen? Why were we born? Where are we headed? What happens after that? People give their opinions. And that's all that it is, an opinion. And it may may be a bright opinion. It may be a hopeful one. It may be a ridiculous one. But still, that's what it is. It's just an opinion. The soul needs a higher source of authority than your opinion or my opinion or some philosopher or psychologist's opinion or even a preacher like Ecclesiastes. The soul longs for truth. Remember, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? As a, a Greek citizen, a Roman citizen would do. They, they so were steeped in philosophy. That would have been a a question that the philosophers at the town square would have approached one Monday morning. Let's get together and talk about truth. What is truth? And people will often ask a question like that to get you off course, to show their superior knowledge. And I don't think that Pilate was necessarily wanting to know. Uh, He was just using that as a deflective thing. What is truth? Often that will silence people to be asked a question like that. Well, the scripture readily answers that question, doesn't it? Thy word is true. As we study this book, remember that we have to keep God's viewpoint in view. In fact, when you look at any question of life, any perplexity, any pain, any sorrow, any inequity, any misunderstanding, any physical malady or illness or death or birth or anything that you can think of, if you do not look at it from God's perspective you will have a wrong one you will have one that is skewed and so in all things as the believer we say what does the lord say about it what what is god's word how does it address this solomon uses the word prophet 10 times in the book we immediately think of gain or an accounting term it is its basic meaning is that which is left over if you had a yard sale Someone would say, well, what did you make? You know, $100, $200, what was your profit? What was left over after everything was cleared away? It means a surplus, an advantage, or gain. It's just the opposite of vanity, which is useless. What if someone said, what did you make? And you said, not one red cent, nothing. The thought would come to mind, you went to all that trouble, That's why I don't have them. Drag all that stuff out, prop it up, let people come and scour it, look at it, and they may or may not buy it for a fraction of the cost of what you paid for it. And then the work begins, doesn't it? Because somebody's got to do something with all the stuff that's left over in your driveway. And guess who that is? That's you. And so what if you went to all the trouble of getting the tables out and putting up the signs and, and, and key places and pricing little price tags on all this stuff you've amassed and put the signs up and the people come by and not one thing is sold for one penny that's that's vanity isn't it profit and loss profit and vanity solomon is asking in ecclesiastes in the light of all the puzzles and problems of life what is the advantage of living why would you want to stay here why would you want to extend life why would you want to prolong death 
and just promote sorrow and live longer to experience more questions and horrible things? Why would you want to prolong that? And, and those outside of Christ and who, those who believe in euthanasia and other in, in ways of, of solving these problems would come to an answer, no, there's no reason. And so if you don't have a God to answer to and give an account to, some people decide that's what they'll do. Since nothing is important and all is just pain and sorrow, why not? If you're looking at things solely from an earthly point of view, you might come to that wrong conclusion. It may seem very logical and right, but I call on us all to look at things from God's perspective. Is there any gain? What is the profit in living to 103? What is the profit of, of whatever you might look at in life, of degrees, of working hard, of building a business, having a family, trying to work out and live healthfully all your life. What is the profit? Because sooner or later, we know that all that's going to come to an end. At least 11 different words are translated labor in the authorized version. In Ecclesiastes, it is used 23 times. It means to toll to the point of exhaustion. The old-timers would say, I've worked my fingers to the bone. You know, I have labored, worked hard all day long. That kind of Hard labor. We think of someone washing clothes by hand or weeding a garden or hoeing a garden or planting it by hand or tilling the land just with, with under toilsome or someone, a brick mason or a, someone digging ditches or laying the footings for a building all by hand with a pickaxe and a shovel, that kind of thing. I planted some fruit trees recently and I thought, my goodness, there's got to be a better way of digging a hole than, than the way I'm doing it. But guess what? That's, I was the only one there and that was the only way to do it. That's labor, isn't it? And that's, the, that's the, what he has in mind. When you see that word work or labor in uh, Ecclesiastes, it's that back-breaking uh, to the point of exhaustion and yet uh, experience little or no fulfillment in your work. You know, in all of work, there's profit, the Scripture says, but sometimes you can work in such a way that you think, what is the use of it? There's no sense of it when, when our son was a teenager, a very early teenager, my wife went to a, a veterinarian near us and asked him to hire him. And she thought that this summer he needed a real dose of, of hard work, cleaning out kennels and that kind of thing. Well, the veterinarian told her that he didn't need, any, he couldn't afford, he just opened his, his practice and said, I don't need it. She said, what if we were to pay you to employ this young man. And so he said, well, if you want to do that. So we made an arrangement, and so uh, he began to work. Well, we, would, we called one day to check on him, and the doctor said, well, he does okay, but when he finishes, whatever I give him to do, he just he gets a book and reads. And so he doesn't go on or just tries to find thing or do the next job. And so my wife told the, the employer, she said, well, why don't you just have him, you've just built that new building, and you have that, that concrete bits and pieces there why don't you have him dig a trench and bury all that and uh, that'd take a good long time and good while and so and uh, the next day if you if you run out of things make him dig it up and move it and say i know i want it on the other side of the building well he did just that i never forget the day that this 13 year old boy came home and, and my wife said well how did it go today he said I'm so tired, I can't see straight. He just had me dig a ditch and bury some stuff, and the next day he had me dig it up and dig another one and bury it on the other side. Now, that's, that's the kind of labor that the Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher, is talking about. There seems no sense in it, hard, back-breaking labor. But what is the use of it? It carries the idea of grief, of misery, or frustration. 
weariness. And that's what he's pointing out here. Of course, it all, if all you looked at was from a human and earthly perspective, everything seems worthless. But the Christian believer can always claim 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, can't we? And in, in, knowing that your labor is not in vain. What is the key there, though? In the Lord. We have put out hundreds of Johns and Romans booklets, and we're about to send out another 40,000 into several zip codes in our area. And I hope that you not only have given, but that you'll pray. And we're waiting till the right at the beginning of school so that, especially in this area, the new students will be in their addresses. And so that we're afraid if we send it right now, that it might get in a mailbox that nobody's going to check and that kind of thing. But uh, we need to pray that the Lord would lay on people's hearts to take that booklet and to read it and to ask the question, why am I here? What is truth? Maybe there's some truth to this. You know, the Holy Spirit would prompt them uh, to read that. Humanly speaking, someone might say, why all the expense and the effort? In fact, I've had people question that. Don't you know that people just throw that away? You know, that's a lot of expense uh, to go. You don't know what they're going to do with it. And, of course, we don't, do we? Uh, Some might might ask, what difference does it make? Uh, We sometimes uh, we uh, ask things like that. I got a letter recently from a cell that, that I could tell by the address. It was from prison. And it it read, I hope this letter finds you and your family spiritually, mentally, and physically in the realm of God. I found one of your booklets on the book of John and Romans in the garbage can. I am reading it now, and it it will help me do the rest of my time, and it gives the date, which is how long he was supposed to be in prison. Now think about that. Somebody might have thrown it away that got it, but somebody else picked it up and thought enough about it to write me a letter to let them know where they found it. That was so encouraging to me. I want you to that was one of those days, if nothing else good had happened in that day, that one little note made the day and the, the effort and expense of all that we went through to, to have that mailing. And this was a while back, one of the other mailings, that it is worth it, isn't it? If, if one soul's heart was open to the gospel part, it would be worth uh, an immense, because the scripture says, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? One soul is worth more than all the money and treasures on earth. He uses the word man several times throughout the book, and it's the Hebrew word that we get for the the name of the first man in the Bible, Adam. And it refers to man is made from the earth. Of course, man is made in the image of God, but our body uh, came from the earth and returns to the earth after death. That's very humbling, isn't it? I remember reading one time a a scientist had uh, come up with all the the minerals and and the elements in a human body and if it's reduced to back to that it was like ten dollars worth of elements the the pure elements that that are found in a human body that's very humbling isn't it ashes to ashes dust to dust of course man is made in the image of god but our body it comes from the earth and goes back to it solomon uses the word 49 times as he examined man under the sun now, as I mentioned, the book is a memoir. It's an autobiography, and so it is filled with personal pronouns, unlike most of the scripture. This is a man's journey. This is what God has allowed for us to peer into 
Solomon's life. And remember the Holy Spirit in some cases lets us see all of a life, not just in its glorious aspects, not just Solomon on the day where he, when God asked him, what would you like for me to give you? And he says, just give me wisdom that to be king. I don't know how to do anything. I don't know how to do this. But and then he builds the temple and all the, the, the historical books, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, if that's all we had of Solomon's life, and his Proverbs and his glorious uh, Proverbs 31 tribute to his mother, if, the, if, if, if we looked at all of that and just thought, well, my, what a man Solomon was. No, but the Holy Spirit allows us to see that there are many facets to the human soul and to the journey of faith. God did not make Solomon disobey just so he could write this book. But he did use Solomon's experiences to prepare him and us as we can look back and see the truth of the matter. Well, what is the practical application of this book for us today? We're kind of looking at an overview before we begin to look at it individually. I believe its message is for today. It's one of those books that you might overlook just by the name of it. It sounds complicated. It sounds musty and dusty and far off. And when you begin to read it, vanity, vanities, nothing's worth living for. Someone might say, well, I need something encouraging. I think I'll go to the Psalms. I don't believe I'll stay in Ecclesiastes. And yet, I think it's very important for us today. Solomon wrote 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. But his society is not too different from our world today, is it? Same problems. Same questions. Solomon saw the poor treated unfairly, and he mentions it. You can hardly listen to a newscast that doesn't talk about the haves and the have-nots, the social conditions, why people act the way they do, if they just had better circumstances, the poor around us. And that's always in every generation, feeding people, the homeless. And, And Solomon notes that. He says he notes the poor. He sees crooked politics, judges being bribed, a righteousness falling in the streets. He sees all kinds of problems, and he's a king. He's a judge. He ought to know. He sees incompetent leaders and mentions it, guilty people allowed to commit more crimes. He saw people motivated by materialism. That sounds like 2000, whatever year this is, 15 or 2016. It'll be that way until the Lord comes back, will it not? We talk about, uh, you know, these Ponzi schemes and banks making away with money and people embezzling on and on and on it, and it never changes. Uh, he saw, he, he expresses a desire for the good old days, whatever those were. Because if we're thinking about the good old days, and Solomon's days were wicked, there never was a time where sin wasn't prevalent on earth. If you've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, then this book urges us to do so without delay. Why? Because no matter how much wealth, how much education, how far you travel, what experience you may have, or social prestige, or name that you may have, life without God is meaningless. Life without God is futile. You're only chasing after the wind or trying to find a soap bubble, and if you do catch it, what's going to happen? It will burst very soon. If you expect to find satisfaction and fulfillment in the things of this world alone, now let me say, God does give us all gifts, doesn't he, richly to enjoy. And aren't we glad that life, you know, God didn't make life uh, just black and white. There's color, and there's texture, and there's taste, and there are fragrances, and there are seasons, and all of those things that, that appeal to the senses that God gave us to enjoy. He could make everything taste like mashed potatoes without seasoning if he wanted to. I mean, all food, no matter what you ate, could taste like that. And everything could look like an old black and white newspaper 
But that's not. Our, we have all these gifts and beautiful things and, and the, the flowers and the colors and the nuances of, of things around us and, and animals and, and the creatures of God's kingdom and all the varied aspects of life. Jesus asked in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, For what should it profit a man? If you want to talk about profit and loss and gain, what would you gain, Jesus said, if you, if you could gain the whole world? No one's ever been able to do that. But Jesus gives this, this unbelievable scenario. If you did have, you were king of the world, and you controlled all the banking and, and governments on earth, if you controlled all, if you had gained all of that, you were the world leader and owner, sole owner, and lost your soul. You see, that is the scale of God's divine measurement that we reduce everything down to. That profit and loss, how about your soul? Is it right with God? Once that question is answered, pain and suffering does not leave, inequities do not go away, questions and all of the world's problems are not solved the day you come to Christ. They're still poor people. There's still inequities. Your body still gets tired and weary and will die one day. But that is the single most important question and the answer to it only you can give. How about your soul? Is it right with God? If you were to stand before him and be called ushered out of this life today, where would you stand? Now that is the scale. Everything put on one side would not balance out that question. Because you see, in that scale is the perfection of Jesus Christ. And that's the only thing that can take away our sin, the very righteousness of God. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, granted, Solomon had everything. We say that in an exaggerated way, but still, compared to most people alive in his time, he had it made. He had more possessions than he knew what to do with. He had all the pleasures that money could buy, uh, power, prestige. He was able to, to build the temple. We've noted some of his achievements, and yet in, when we get to Ecclesiastes, Solomon is empty. And he's saying, I don't care where you look, which direction you look, or what you accomplish, it's all empty. We don't have to repeat Solomon's mistakes. We see people all around us doing that. They leave the God of their youth, the God of their Sunday school, the God they learned at their mother's knee, the gospel message, the claims of Christ. The Bible tells us whatsoever things were written aforetime, these things, Ecclesiastes, were written for who? For us, for our learning. Not just so we can know it in facts and be able to talk about Ecclesiastes, but to enter into Solomon's experience at least vicariously. We don't have to marry thousands of women or go to where he went, departing from the faith and all, to see how empty and useless and pitiful and horrible that kind of lifestyle is. We can look and read this record that God has left us and say, oh, that's, what, that's where that path will lead. We don't have to be ignorant of Satan's devices. And, and let me just ask you, if Satan could tempt the wisest man on earth, if Satan could, could, could get the, the, the leading king of his day, a man of great wealth, to, to leave it all and to go on this journey of philosophizing and, uh, and denying the, the things that, that, that he held dear, are any, is anyone exempt apart from the grace of God? We're not ignorant of his devices, and he will do the same to us. We are to accept God, Solomon's conclusions and avoid the heartache 
the pain of, of living foolishly and disobediently. That kind of living is costly, no matter how wealthy you are. You don't have enough money to pay for the trip, the ticket back from Tarshish. Only God can bring you back from there. Uh, Jonah had enough money to go to Tarshish, which, by the way, he never made it there, did he? That, that ticket, he needed a refund on that ticket. He never made it there. You don't have enough money to pay your way back from there. That kind of living is very costly, isn't it? The richest man on earth uh, could not uh, pay the bill that that, that that kind of living costs. And it is fatal. When you belong to the family of God through faith in the Son of God, life is not monotonous. Solomon, if you read this, this guy who had the food imported from all over the earth, exotic animals and menageries of animals, plants, and beauty everywhere he looked, it became just a monochromatic, boring life. How, you think, how could that be boring? Life is not boring with the Lord in the midst of it. It is a daily adventure that builds character and enables us to, to serve others and, and to glorify God, even in our deprivations, even in our pain, even with the thorn that he allows and the grace that he supplies in that superabundant way. Instead of making decisions on the basis of the vain wisdom of this world, if you ask most people's opinion, they'll give it to you purely from a profit-loss answer, won't they? Well, I'll tell you, the best route, the cheapest route, or the best and they'll give it to you from an accountant's perspective, and we praise the Lord for all of you accountants. But there's more to an answer than a spreadsheet, isn't there? There's more to it than you, than you can figuring out what can I get out of this if I make this decision. Instead of making decisions on the basis of the wisdom of this world, you will have God's wisdom available to you. And James says all we have to do is ask him. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth how? Liberally. He's given us a 66-book library filled with his wisdom. Every area of life is addressed. And God's final amen on all things are given to us in his word. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 tells us that God gives us, as I've mentioned, richly all things to enjoy. And we'd have to say, oh, how wonderful these, these, the bounty of God's blessings are to us. Every time we say the blessings over our food... We realize that we have more at that one meal than, than the majority of people on earth will ever enjoy that kind of meal. Proverbs 10, verse 22, The blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. Now, you can't put that in your spreadsheet, can you? The blessing of the Lord, number one, can't be put in a monetary format, although it does include material provision. But who could calculate how much money you'll need to live the rest of your life? You don't know that, the answer to that question, do you? Guess who does? God does. And he's, the psalmist said, goodness and mercy have followed me how, how long? All the days of my life up to that point. And so we can conclude that the Lord knows exactly how much it'll take to get us home. And then when that time comes, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with us, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What what a guarantee, what a policy that is that you certainly couldn't put a price tag on. If there's one truth Solomon emphasizes in this book, it is the certainty of death. No matter what he's accomplished, death's shadow was always hovering over him. And, and I'm not meaning to be pessimistic today, but as we age, we age. 
And as we live each day, we wake up, there's another pain, there's another situation, the limitations of life begin to cast that shadow. And we see the changes, we notice the changes, and we know that death is inevitable. If you don't know Christ as Savior, then all that you work for and live for will ultimately perish, won't it? And you will perish too. That's a, a horrible word, perish, ruin. You hate to open the refrigerator and notice those fresh blueberries you bought at the market, you forgot about them, and they've perished. Perishing means it's, it's lost, it's gone, it's, it's beyond reclamation. Faith in Christ brings you the gift of eternal life and the privilege of serving him and investing uh, your life in, in that which is eternal. Solomon asked, are you living for the Lord or for the things of this world? And that's a question we all need to, to ask ourselves. Remember, Solomon knew God, was greatly blessed by the Lord, and yet he turned away from the Lord and went his own way. Now, we've seen that over and over again, not only in people that we know, but in, if we're honest, in our own life. I would tell you that the, though the prodigal went far away from home, the elder brother was far away from home too, wasn't he? You could never leave the father's side physically and still be far away. You can never leave the, the, the fellowship of his church and still in your spiritual journey be far, far away from what you ought to be in, in, in the closeness and the, the communion and harmony and fellowship with the Lord. No wonder he became pessimistic and skeptical as he looked at life. One of the things that leads to this, one of the things is we, we lose the focus of our life. We know that, that Christ is to be the object of our mind's eye, our, our soul's eye. One of the tactics of Satan is for us to, to move our attention from the Lord to his followers. And uh, that's a very sad thing, isn't it? Because all of us are frail and uh, depraved, and even the best of us are still just sinners saved by the grace of God. If we focus our attention on anything but God's truth or anyone but the, word of, but anyone but the Lord himself, we will be misled. We will be disillusioned. We are disillusioned in our own selves, aren't we? No one disappoints Chris Lamb any more than Chris Lamb disappoints himself. The Bible is so true. It says we fall short. That verse is so powerful. And it's not just talking about the, li- the lost. All of us, apart from Christ, fall short of the glory of God. No wonder Solomon becomes pessimistic and skeptical as he looked around him. Even from his gilded window... As he looked out over a a kingdom that was largely peaceful, Solomon had to fight no major wars. His whole kingdom, at the time of his reign, was relatively peaceful. It was one of the most uh, peaceful times of all of Israel's history. The wealth that he amassed, the the things that he had accomplished, is amazing. And yet, in this time of his life, he's looking at it all as being empty and vexing and useless. He was living... Uh, without God's purposes, and so he, he didn't have God's perspective. When you know what God says and what God desires and you strive for, then you see things from God's perspective. Instead of seeking those things which are above, the Scripture tells us to do that, to search for heavenly treasures and seek those things which are above. And we start living solely for those things down here, sinking sand, vanishing soap bubbles. We'll see that a house built on the wrong foundation will will one day fall away there's a house i pass every once in a while it was built around the turn of the century one of those little simple frame farmhouses and it must have been built on the the stone the rock pilings because this house 
ultimately is leaning. You just wonder why it hadn't gone ahead and fallen. It is like if you had stepped on it, you know, like a cardboard box and you stepped on it, the front is leaning. If you were to face it, the front is leaning that way. The whole house is leaning that way and, and to the left. It looks like about a two- or four-room house. And every time I pass it, I marvel that it just hadn't gone ahead and just uh, fallen. Now, you and I know the, there's a lot of problems. Maybe been termites, maybe other things. But I'm, I would surmise, though I have not gotten out and inspected it, that there's a foundation problem there. Wouldn't you think that there'd have to be a problem with the footings and the foundation there? The Bible tells us those who build their soul on any other foundation than Jesus Christ, and that alone will not stand when the flood comes and the rains and the storms that will come and do come to every soul, every life. The, the storms, all the storms that hell can throw our way will not remove us when we are founded on Jesus Christ. And so I ask you today, as we, we end these first verses of Ecclesiastes where Solomon is saying, Everything is useful, everything is rotten, nothing is good. Why try, why work? All was going to just go to, you know, like a soap bubble. All is sinking sand. Nobody's right. Everybody's fake. No religion is right. And sadly, most people on earth really have that philosophy, don't they? When you adopt the wrong values and you you stop living for the eternal, the result will be disappointment. We've all bought something. You've saved for it. You bought it, and you thought that is just the thing you needed. And after a while, it, just, it certainly didn't, didn't have the thrill that we thought it would or the satisfaction that we thought it would bring. The result is disappointment, defeat. And the only remedy, as we'll find in Solomon's journey, is repentance, confession of sin, and returning to the Lord in, in repentance and, and, and uh, remorse for the way we've gone. Life is filled with problems. Life is full of heartache. The best life on earth does not lose a loved one or have a failed relationship or have pain or suffering or sickness. There's no life exempt. If you look at someone and think they have a charmed life or no problems or they're perfect Christians, you're just, you're, you're just in a world that's not real because that's not real. We're to face life honestly, and the only way to do that is from the truth. And the truth is what God says about it, not how I feel about it, not what the, the news anchor per, per person tells me about it or all the psychologists together. That's not how to look at life. We're to look at it from the truth, and the truth is from God's word, from God's perspective. Lord, help me to see. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law is our prayer. Search me and try me and show me. Man's philosophies will fail you, won't they? Because they're, that, they're from man. Use your God-given wisdom. Don't expect to solve every problem or answer every question. You will leave this world having questions. There's a dear lady in our church who came from another country. She's a scientist, and she came, and we met her on visitation and began to share the gospel with her. She'd never heard about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after two years of being in the ladies' Bible class and the preaching of the gospel, she, she came to faith in Christ. But she told me as a scientist, when, I, when she came to me rejoicing that she had submitted to the Lord and believed on Jesus Christ. She said, and I would give her, you know, Henry Morris's books on the creation, all the questions that she had, and she read them just voraciously. But still, she said, then that would answer, bring up a whole bunch of other questions. And she soon realized in the matter of the soul and the eternal, there are questions that we cannot have answered 
to our human satisfaction. And I never forget, she said, I came to the point that I would not have all my questions answered in this life. But if there was a God who was so loving that he would send his son to die for me, then I could trust him with all those unanswered questions. And I'll never forget in my office today, she said, Pastor, I believe, I believe. I know I have to believe for myself in the work of Christ. Well, you can be a scientist and do research and cancer and all kinds of things. You can be Solomon and build a kingdom unequaled and unparalleled on earth and still have nothing. You can have Christ and be the, 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 the doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, a street sweeper, but to have Christ is to have everything. Man's philosophies will fail you. The important thing is to obey God's will and enjoy what he has given to us. Isn't it something how Satan tries to get us to look at the one tree that God does not allow us to have and we have thousands of trees to eat from in his precious garden? Remember, death is coming. And we must be prepared. Moses put it this way in his beautiful Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us then to number our days. Why? Why should we be numbering our days? That we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And the wisest thing on earth is to run to Jesus Christ and to submit to his lordship. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would teach us and speak to our hearts today. And as we enter into worship, I pray that we would truly worship you in spirit and in truth. And may those who may be outside of Christ to think of their situation. And may they believe on Christ with all their heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.